really is an honor and a joy to be here. Uh, my wife and I are uh, glad to be here and not back in Nashville. They got three inches of snow, which means our kids are home. And um, we're here, not there. So <laughs> it's nice. It's a nice little getaway. And uh, what a beautiful place to be. Um, as Andrew mentioned, I have been working with college students nearly 20 years as a pastor with a ministry called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. And about 20 years ago, when I would meet with students, many of whom at Belmont University come from at least a church background, I would have a regular conversation with them at a little coffee shop across the street called Bongo Java. And we would talk, and they would often talk to me about doubts and struggles that they would have, and they would conclude that probably they weren't Christians because they had these sorts of doubts and struggles. And I would often ask them, well, have you read the Psalms? Because the kinds of things that you're saying, the kinds of struggles that you're having, seem to be rather often present in the Psalms. And I would find, no, they really hadn't read the Psalms. But then as I began to question them more and try to dig into where was, where was this, not just the doubts and struggles, but the conclusion that the doubts and struggles meant that they couldn't be Christians at all, where was that coming from? I began to suspect it was coming from the songs they were singing. So I began to look at some of the songs they were singing. They were saying things that were really over the top. Expressions of, of faith and joy without any expression of doubt and struggle. And as I began to wrestle with this, I realized something that people uh, in the church and the Christian tradition have known for a long time. That worship is formative. Like it or not. That what we sing is Modeling for people what the normal Christian life feels like. And if that's true, we better attend to the kinds of songs that we're singing. As I began to think about what I was trying to preach, the way I was trying to help people understand the fullness of the Christian life, the relationship, the walk of faith, the ups and the downs, and all these sorts of things, I would talk to them about, you know, for instance, Mary, when she's told that she's going to have a child. You remember what she says? She says, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. Clearly, someone that the church has long held up as a paradigm of a faithful um, witness and follower uh, of the gospel, the first thing out of her mouth is a doubt. And yet, my students had lost connection with that. And I found more and more, I felt it was the songs that they were singing. I want us to read uh, together a psalm. If you have a Bible or you have a pew Bible, we're going to look at Psalm 73. Because I'm very concerned that the sorts of songs that we tend to sing in many of our churches are lying to people about what the normal Christian life feels like. And in my 20 years of working with students, I've found great benefit, not only in the Psalms, but in some of these hymns that speak, I think, more honestly about the Christian faith. So this Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph. I'm going to skip a few of the verses, but we're going to start reading at verse 1. So follow along with me if you would like. Truly, God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
For they have no pains. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as other men are. They are not stricken like other men. Jump down to verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have been untrue to the generation of thy children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Truly, thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost make them fall to ruin. Jump down to verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and arrogant, sorry, ignorant. I was like a beast toward thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou dost hold my right hand. Thou dost guide me with thy counsel, and afterward thou wilt receive me to glory. Who have I in heaven but thee? And there is nothing upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, those who are far from thee shall perish. Thou dost put an end to those who are false to thee. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all thy works. Please pray with me briefly. Lord, we thank you. For your holy word. We thank you that you don't leave us in the dark, but you speak truth to us. And now I pray, Lord, you'd send your spirit to help us understand and be blessed by your holy word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't have time to talk much about Psalm 73, but this is such a different world than so many of the songs that we sing in modern Christianity. I actually had an opportunity to spend a week with other hymn scholars and church musicians and theologians at Calvin College up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, studying 250 of the most used hymns of the last several hundred years and comparing them to 250 of the most commonly used modern worship songs for various theological um, issues and different you know, content and whatnot. And it was a fascinating study. And what I used to think of as merely anecdotal was confirmed by actual research of the modern songs that we sing. And I think there are a lot of good modern songs, so don't get me wrong. But the word sin is never used as a verb. Never. It's used as a noun twice. A full understanding of the Trinity appears maybe in one or two songs. In other words, if you take a lot of the songs that my students were singing almost exclusively, and you begin to look at them, you begin to understand why they had a skewed understanding of what the normal Christian life felt like. Something like Psalm 73 is a very different kind of song. I mean, look at this song. It starts out honesty about the struggle. I mean, it's remarkable, not only that this song exists, but that it's in the Bible. If you were creating a religion, wouldn't you want to hide these sorts of things? You certainly wouldn't put it on display. The psalmist says, it's good. Surely God is good to 
believe it. And I almost completely fell away. Like That's not the kind of stuff that if you're trying to market Christianity, you would keep in the Bible. But there it is. God thought it was good for us to have these sorts of songs. He confesses the truth here in the psalm, but in his heart he's really struggling. And the thing that's making him struggle is looking at all those around and saying they don't struggle. Their bodies don't wear out. They're rich. As for me, I've kept my heart pure in vain. It's a very strong statement. Take that out of the context of this psalm and it's an outright lie. But it's an honest expression of what he's feeling. What's the point of Christianity? What's the point of following you, God? And I think it's remarkable that God gives us these kinds of words and says, this is appropriate to speak to me. That you don't have to come to church and pretend that everything's great. That even these kinds of songs, even these kinds of expressions are included in God's hymn book, the Psalter. He confesses that he had even become insane as he thought about this. As he obsessed about the people out there that didn't seem to be struggling. And he uses words, you know, if ever you're having an argument, you use words like, they never struggle. I'm always stricken and afflicted, right? Those are not very helpful kinds of always and never kind of words, right? He's kind of lost perspective, hasn't he? But then something happens. He says he enters into the sanctuary. And what does he understand when he enters into the sanctuary? The sanctuary is the place where the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices took place in Old Testament worship. But what he concludes first is death is coming. You can't participate in Old Testament sacrificial system worship and miss the point that death is coming and death is deserved. But what transforms him is the experience of knowing that God in his grace has promised a substitute for death for his people. It's pointing the way to Jesus. It's as he enters into the sanctuary, as he gazes upon the sacrifices, as he understands that God in his grace will provide, everything changes. He sees the gospel in the sanctuary and it restores his sanity. He goes from being obsessed with the why questions. Why don't they struggle? Why do I struggle? To the who question. I think it's a very important move when we are struggling because so many of our why questions are really who questions in disguise. And what helps him is to get beyond, again, the why questions are in the Bible, they're appropriate to ask, but the context of them needs to be the who. And the who question that he can't get over is, who is a God like you that would offer a way to be reconciled and to be with you. And at the end of the psalm, that's what he celebrates. In spite of the fact that my feet had almost slipped, in spite of the fact that I was stupid and ignorant like a brute beast, yet I am always with you. Not because of me, but because of you. Worship that focuses on God and what he's like and what he's done in the gospel really can help restore our sanity. Horatius Bonar, the great 19th century Scottish hymn writer, expressed the heart of the gospel in these beautiful words. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. And when Asaph enters the sanctuary and sees that, everything changes. 
See, I believe we need psalms and songs like Psalm 73 that are honest about the struggle and even help us learn to argue the gospel with ourselves against our doubts and fears. And that's why I want us to look briefly at this hymn. Dear refuge of my weary soul. So when I was struggling trying to figure out what kinds of songs can I bring to my students to help them understand the relationship with God is not a little fairy tale. But it involves ups and downs and real struggles. I stumbled upon an old hymnal from the early 1800s and I found this text Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. I didn't know who had written it at the time. This old hymnal didn't have any music. Hymnals before the Civil War generally didn't have music in them, just the text. And I thought, my gosh, we don't sing songs like this anymore. I don't know of, I can't imagine this song being sung in the 20th century or the 21st century or coming out of Nashville in the music industry. But what a song. And my students need to sing songs like this. I came later to find that this was written by a lady named Ann Steele. She was a Baptist hymn writer, lived in England in the early 1700s. She struggled immensely, never married, but wrote some of the most powerful songs, particularly songs of lament. And I've got to tell you, in our day and age, when young people are longing for authenticity, we need to recover songs of lament. And this one has been a very precious song in our ministry with students and beyond. Let's read this together. I'll make a few comments and then we'll go have some lunch. Dear refuge of my weary soul. I remember the first time I read that line, I thought, can you say that in church? Is that okay to sing something like that? That's a, these are the kind of songs that aren't in the hymnals anymore. But they're still in the experience of Christians all the time. And if you're trying to figure out what Christianity is about, I want you to understand that it's about this. It's not about having enough faith so that you can believe in God and never struggle anymore. It's about entering into a relationship with God who wants to make you more like Jesus. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. I love the honesty. My fainting hope. That's an orthodox confession there. She's saying, you're the one that I cry out to. You're the one that I can roll my troubles onto. Much like Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel. But look where she goes next. Verse 2. While hope revives, though pressed with fears, and I can say, my God, beneath thy feet I spread my cares and pour my woes abroad. She says, while I have a moment of sanity, and I can say, my God. Martin Luther used to say that there's a whole world of theology in these little words like my and are and for and but. My God, while I can say my God, while I believe that you really are for me, let me lay this out while I have this moment of sanity. And she goes on. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. Again, good, solid confession. She understands the Bible. She understands her theology. But look at verse 4. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail. She doesn't mean when gloomy doubts sort of trouble me, nip around my heels. No, when gloomy doubts prevail. Do you believe that Christians are people who at times have gloomy doubts prevail? I hope so. Because I don't want you to be like my students who thought that their doubts meant they couldn't possibly be Christians. When do gloomy doubts prevail, she says, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. 
Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Now she's arguing, even against her fears, wrestling with God, bringing her struggles before the face of God, and wrestling with Him in it. Verse 6, Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No. Still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. I love that word, breathe. Have you ever been at a place where you found it difficult to even articulate the sorrow and the sadness? And how good to know that it's enough to breathe your sorrows. And then she reminds herself and us, Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. She's come back to a place of faith. But it's not a triumphalistic, naive faith. It's a faith, a faith formed through the crucible. Honest wrestling with God, reminding herself of what he's revealed about his character. You know, it really is so important that we understand not just who God is, but his heart. And as she wrestles with that, as it's revealed in the word, it does bring a sweet relief. But it's not, again, a shallow, naive faith. These are the kind of songs we sing. There's a friend of mine, John Whitley, directs the Calvin Institute of Worship. And he said that weekly, regular worship forms us for our encounter with death. I don't know what you think about when you think about the songs that we should be singing in church. But I think what songs are preparing my college students for their encounter with death. And these are the kind of songs that I found so helpful. We're going to sing a few more of these tonight, weather permitting, and talk a little bit more about hymns and why some of these kinds of hymns. But let me close this in prayer and then invite us to lunch. Lord, we do thank you for the saints that have went before us. We thank you for Ann Steele. We thank you that she didn't just struggle, but she put pen to paper so that her story, could we could try it on and see if it fits. I thank you that this woman who lived 300 years ago knows the same God. She knows you. And she loves you. And um, yet she struggled. And I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged by that. But even more so, that we would be encouraged by you. And your loving, um, your loving uh, truth that you give us in your word. We thank you that Jesus does not require us to feel right to forgive us. And we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us today, um, even as we partake of this food, this tangible reminder that you give good gifts to your children, gifts that we don't deserve. And may that be a tangible reminder for us and increase our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.